Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 16. John chapter 16, and I'll read verses 7 through 11. John 16 and verse 7. And Jesus said, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper shall not come to you, But if I go, I will send him to you, and he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father, and you no longer behold me, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged In our recent sermons, we've been studying the heart of Christ for his disciples on earth, even now as he is in the glory of heaven. And we've seen that he still continues to have the same heart of love and affection for his people on earth as he ever had while he was here. And one of the great evidences of his continuing love for his disciples is his gift of the Holy Spirit that when he returns to heaven, he will ask the Father, the Father will send the Holy Spirit, and then here again in John chapter 16, Jesus again speaks of the coming of the Holy Spirit. He says in verse 7 that he, I tell you the truth, that it will be to your advantage that I go and send the Spirit to you. It will be better for you, he means, to your greater good, to your higher advantage, your blessing, that I depart from you and send to you the great helper, the most excellent of all ministries from the Holy Spirit. We should note that when Jesus tells his disciples here that the coming ministry of the Holy Spirit, he says, is to your advantage, Jesus spoke out of his own rich experience of the Holy Spirit throughout his own life. The Holy Spirit had always been the constant companion of the Lord Jesus. He was conceived in the womb of Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. When he entered into his ministry with the baptism of John, the Holy Spirit came upon him like a dove. And the Spirit rested upon Jesus throughout all of his ministry in fullest measure. He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days, and he returned in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit was the constant companion of Jesus, giving to him all strength, wisdom, and grace that he needed. In every sorrow of his life, the Holy Spirit ministered comfort to him. In every trial, he gave him peace. In every disappointment, faith, and hope in the promises of God, he was always upheld by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit. And so when he told his disciples this night at the Last Supper, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away and send you this other helper. 
He did not speak abstractly or theoretically, as if he spoke of something he knew nothing of. But he spoke out of his own rich experience and what he had personally come to know in his own life of all the grace and help of the Holy Spirit. It was as if Jesus could say on this occasion to his disciples, but I tell you the truth which I have come to know myself in all of my trials and all my temptations, that I will send to you another helper and he will be to you of the same kind of help that he has been to me. We continue our study here in John chapter 16 tonight. And Jesus now goes on in the following verses to tell us what the Holy Spirit will do when he comes. In verse 8 he says, And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The object of the Spirit's work here will be not Christ's disciples, but the world. Jesus promised the helper, the Spirit as the helper or the comforter to his disciples, but here he promises the Holy Spirit in an entirely different work in the world, a work of conviction in which the people of the world are convinced of sin and righteousness and judgment. The basic meaning of the word convict is to prove one guilty. It means to convince someone of his error or his fault. To show someone who he truly is. The King James translates it to reprove, but that does not seem to have the force of to prove one guilty. It is a legal term that was used in a court of law in which a prosecutor would cross-examine an opposing witness and the prosecutor would effectually refute the false testimony of the opposing witness. The prosecutor would prove his case and convince the false witness of his error. In the situation that Jesus speaks of here, the Holy Spirit is the prosecutor. And the people of the world are like the opposing witness because they have false views of what sin is and they do not understand what true righteousness is nor the judgment that is to come. But when the Holy Spirit comes and he acts as prosecutor, he proves his case. He convicts men of sin and he brings them to right understanding of true righteousness And judgment. Jesus speaks here of the work of conversion, in which people who are in the world, because we are all in the world before salvation, but the Holy Spirit comes to those who are in the world and does this great work, convinces them of the gravity of sin, the need for righteousness, and of the judgment that is to come. This was the great work of the apostles as they were to bring the good news of the gospel into the world for the first time. And this is the continuing work of evangelism of the church today. 
Jesus has already mentioned the work of evangelism and the spread of the gospel at the end of the previous chapter, chapter 15. We look at verses 26 and 27. He said, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness of me. And you will bear witness of me also because you have been with me from the beginning. So in verse 26, the helper, the Holy Spirit, he bears witness of Christ. In verse 27, the disciples on earth, they bear witness of Christ as well. So there is this conjunction of the Spirit and the disciples together in the witness of Christ in the preaching of the gospel in the world. But the gospel will be a despised message because it is a message that humbles human pride. And it is a message that is contrary to the flesh and to the worldly interests of men. It calls men to repentance and turn away from their love of the world. And it calls them to a complete dependence upon another for salvation. This is a message that will be hated and it will bring the rage of men against Christ's disciples. And this is what Jesus has been telling them throughout this passage as well. If we look back to verse chapter 15 and verse 18, he tells them, if the world hates you, you will know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. And then he says in regard to the world, but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. Down in verse 26 and 27, he mentions the witness of the Holy Spirit with the witness of the disciples. Then he returns in chapter 16 to the persecution and the hatred of the world. Verses 1 and 2, he says, These things I have spoken to you, that you may be kept from stumbling. They will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. These things they will do because they have not known the Father or me. And so Jesus here, he is soon to send out his disciples into this hostile and violent world with the gospel message that will bring this fierce opposition and hostility upon them, even death by persecution. The difficulties that these disciples, the apostles will encounter will be overwhelming. The task is insurmountable, impossible to men. They are weak men who have no strength or power in themselves. And with all the opposition that Jesus speaks of throughout this passage, what hope could they ever have of success in their mission? How could they go forth now and preach the gospel after all that Jesus has said to them? In verse 7 of chapter 16, he assures them that the coming of the Holy Spirit will be to their advantage. 
But what specific work will the Holy Spirit do which will be to their advantage in the spreading of the gospel message? That's what he begins to answer now in verse 8. But he, when he comes, this is what he will do. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. It is an assurance to the disciples as Christ will send them out into the world that they will not go by themselves. The Holy Spirit will come with them and do the great work of salvation, conversion that must be done. Now, some argue that this work of the Holy Spirit in these verses is a work that often falls short of salvation. Some are converted under this, these works of the Holy Spirit. Some are not. Some are convicted of sin and righteousness and judgment, but they never come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And there are good commentators on both sides of this argument. Some say it is conversion. Some say, no, not always conversion. But sometimes works that are short of conversion. But I cannot see how the Holy Spirit in this context comes and convicts men in the world, yes, of their sin, righteousness, and the judgment to come. And that work of the Holy Spirit is not effectual to bring them to salvation. It would be contrary to the word, the meaning of the word convict, which is a full persuasion, a proving, a prosecution of the case, a proving of the case, and a turning of one from the wrong way. Anything less than a conviction that leads to salvation would be insufficient to encourage the apostles as Christ now sends them out with this gospel message. He is not sending them out to half convince the world of the gospel message. He is sending them out to fully convince them of the gospel message. And that's what he speaks of here. He is not sending them out to preach a gospel that partially affects men's minds, but he is sending them out with a gospel that will bring them to salvation. And that, this view really, I think, becomes more clear and leads us to believe, even in the following verses, as we work down through eventually through verse 16 of this chapter, that Jesus does speak here of the work of the Holy Spirit in conversion. It is true that the Holy Spirit does work in the people of this world in ways that are short of salvation. The Holy Spirit gives men common grace and restrains them from sin. The Holy Spirit strives with men as Genesis chapter 6 in the days of Noah. The Holy Spirit can be resisted by men, as Stephen said in Acts chapter 7. And men can come in some general way, perhaps in the context of the church, where they can be partakers of the influences of the Holy Spirit and yet never come to salvation, as in Hebrews chapter 6. 
There are works of the Holy Spirit which are short of salvation, but they, they are evident in other places of Scripture, and there is no need to force them here. When the Holy Spirit comes in the work of salvation, when he comes to bring the work that Jesus speaks of here, he comes with his effectual power, and he brings sinners out of the world and into his kingdom. Jesus speaks of a supernatural, powerful, effectual work of the Holy Spirit in which he convicts men of sin, righteousness, and judgment, and he brings sinners to salvation. This is what takes place in the heart of everyone who becomes a Christian. They are convicted of their sin, and they are convinced of righteousness and the judgment to come. And the only one who can effectually bring this about is the Holy Spirit from Christ. The persuasive arguments of men, no matter how clever they may be, can never accomplish this great purpose. Human eloquence, human reasoning will fall short. Man-made efforts and emotional excitement will only produce temporary and passing results. The only one who can effectually convince men of sin, righteousness, and judgment and bring them to saving faith is the Holy Spirit. And it is the only hope for us and the great need of salvation. This is the advantage that Jesus is speaking of here in this passage. I tell you the truth, it will be to your advantage that I go away, because the only one who can do this great work is the Holy Spirit whom I will send. So this is the encouragement to the disciples here. Sometimes many are saved, sometimes few, but all are saved by the work of the Holy Spirit. Then Jesus goes on in the next three verses to open up each of these more closely, and we'll look at each of them this evening. In the first place, the Holy Spirit convicts of sin. Jesus says in verse 9, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. All men are by nature blind to the reality the gravity and the danger of their sin. When you try and persuade someone that they are a sinner in the sight of God and how dangerous it is to be in such a place, they may say to you, well, I know that I am not perfect and I have made mistakes and perhaps I have done some wrong, but I have done the best that I could. If you present to them the Ten Commandments and you ask them, you go down through the commandments, have you ever had a hateful thought or a lustful thought? Have you ever lied? Have you ever broken the fourth commandment of God on the Sabbath day? They may even admit that they have broken the Ten Commandments, but they will not see the gravity and the danger of sin. They do not realize that even the least sin brings them under the wrath of Almighty God.
God. No matter what human persuasions and arguments you may present, you will never be able to convince them in yourself of the true evil of sin. I am not saying you should not attempt to do so. You should. But by ourselves, we will never be able to convince them of the evil of sin. But the Holy Spirit, when the Holy Spirit comes, He is able to convince men of sin. And their eyes are opened. And they see sin for what it really is, the great evil in the sight of God. And they are fully persuaded of their own sinfulness. And they are speechless. And they have no argument with God over it. Sometimes the Holy Spirit uses the law of God in the Ten Commandments to convince men of sin. This is what Paul speaks of in Romans chapter 3, where he says, through the law comes the knowledge of sin, so every mouth may be closed. Without this work of the Holy Spirit, a person will never see the guilt and the danger of sin. But Jesus mentions here another truth which the Holy Spirit uses to convince of sin especially. And it is the unbelief which men have concerning him. Concerning sin, he says, because they do not believe in me. Unbelief is the characteristic sin of the world. And the coming of Jesus Christ into the world shows now how great a sin unbelief really is. Because in the person of Jesus Christ, God has accomplished his most astonishing and wonderful work of all eternity. That he has sent his beloved son into the world as a man. In that great miracle of an incarnation, God became man and dwelt among us and lived a perfect and holy life. And then God did something unimaginable that even the angels of heaven marvel over. He took his beloved son and placed upon him the sins of all his people. And he punished his beloved son at the cross so that he could set sinners free from the judgment of God against them. He did not spare his only beloved son, but he delivered him up for his all in that one sacrifice which can take away all of our sin. A most amazing work of God. It was not done out of any obligation On God's part. It was done freely. Willingly. And out of his heart. Of love. For poor sinners. God demonstrates his own love for us. And that while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. And God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him. Should not perish. But have eternal life. And John says, in this is love, not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And now, 
the way of forgiveness and salvation is freely offered to all men through the gospel. That whoever will come, they are welcome to come, and Jesus Christ will forgive and cleanse them of all their sins and save them in eternal salvation. But men refuse to come. They reject the offer of the gospel. They love darkness rather than light, and they will not come to the light. No greater sin could there be than to be offered eternal salvation by the God of heaven in that work of his beloved son, the infinite cost of the death of Christ upon a cross. No greater sin could there be than to be offered that salvation and to reject it and not to believe in him. The greatness of God's love is the measure of how great the sin of unbelief is. The glory of what God has done in Jesus Christ reveals the seriousness of not believing in him. A man may sin against the law and bring himself under condemnation. But no greater sin can there be than to reject God's beloved Son. It is to not believe the witness that God, the God of truth who cannot lie, it is to reject the witness of God and to declare him to be a liar. John says in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 10 that the one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the witness that God has borne concerning his son. We see an example of this work of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. They did not believe in Jesus before Pentecost. They thought he was an imposter and they crucified him and put him to death. But when the Holy Spirit came on that day and convinced them of their sin of unbelief, proved to them their unbelief, they were pierced to the heart and they repented of their sins and they turned to Jesus for salvation. The second work of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit convicts of righteousness. This is what we see in verse 10. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me. Righteousness is living according to God's law. A righteous life is a life of perfect obedience to God's commandments. He is a God of righteousness. He will never permit anyone to enter heaven unless they have perfect righteousness. Righteousness is what we need to enter heaven, but we have no righteousness in ourselves. Because we are unrighteous, we are sinners, we are defiled by all of our great and many sins, we are under condemnation. Paul says in Romans chapter 3 that there is none righteous, not even one. And our sin makes us unable to ever accomplish, achieve any righteousness that is pleasing and acceptable to God by the works of the law. No man will ever be justified in his sight. 
And so the great question that we have tonight is, how can sinners have the righteousness that is pleasing to God and acceptable to him? And that's answer, the answer is found in the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. We need two parts to righteousness. We need a righteousness, what is called perhaps an act of righteousness, in which we are seen as those who have obeyed and kept all the demands of the law. And then we need an atonement to take away all of our violations of the law. And we have both of them in the work of Jesus Christ. We have the act of obedience of Christ. He kept all of his father's law. And then he went to the cross in the atonement of the cross to take away the penalty of all of our sin. So all righteousness that we need is found in Jesus Christ God, Paul calls it in Romans chapter 3, the righteousness of God. Because it is the righteousness that God accomplished in Christ. It is the righteousness that he approves of and the righteousness that he accepts. It is the righteousness of God. But now, he says, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, he says... That he, God, made him Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The great exchange. Christ took our sin, and we took his righteousness by faith. And this is God's way of salvation. As soon as one believes in Jesus, the righteousness of Christ is freely given to them. And having the righteousness of Christ, they are justified forever in God's sight as if they had perfectly obeyed the law all their life and all the penalty of their sins is removed forever by the death of Jesus. This is the righteousness that we need and the righteousness that Jesus speaks of here in verse 10. The Holy Spirit convinces men of this righteousness found in Jesus Christ. And here is the evidence of his righteousness. Because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me or see me. He speaks of his ascension back into heaven to the Father. To take his seat at the right hand of God. This is the ultimate proof of his perfect righteousness. In that God the Father has accepted Jesus And Christ has taken his seat at the right hand of God the Father. What greater evidence could there ever be of the righteousness of Jesus Christ than his ascension going to the Father and taking his seat at the right hand of God? We do not see him any longer. We do not behold him any longer in this world because he has gone to the Father. And he is accepted into heaven. Why? Because of his perfect righteousness. And he has merited that throne where he sits tonight. The Holy Spirit, when he convinces men of sin in verse 9, he also convinces them of the righteousness they need. Found only in Jesus Christ. 
You remember the parable of the Pharisee and the publican who went up into the temple. The Pharisee trusted in himself that he was righteous. And he stood and prayed, God, I thank thee that I am not like other people. And he went down and listed all of his good works that he thought gave him righteousness in the sight of God. But the tax gatherer, he was standing some distance away and he was unwilling to even lift up his eyes to heaven and he was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And what was happening with that tax gatherer is that he was under the conviction of his own sin by the Holy Spirit. And he knew he had no righteousness in himself, only sin. And he had to look to God for righteousness. And Jesus said that that man went home that day justified in his sight. Men by nature think they have righteousness in themselves, like that Pharisee. Men think that they are good enough to merit God's favor and entrance into his heaven. But when the Holy Spirit convinces of sin, a man is left without any hope in himself. And the Holy Spirit also convinces him of the righteousness that he needs in the person of Jesus Christ. It is an amazing thing when we think of it. That we who are believers tonight, we have put our trust for all eternity in a man who was crucified as a criminal on a cross. We have put our confidence in him and in his righteousness to stand before God on the great day. The world says that it is foolishness. Who could ever believe such a thing as this and put their confidence in him? Only the Holy Spirit can convince men of this righteousness. Only the Holy Spirit through the gospel can convince us, persuade us, and prove to us that Jesus Christ is our only hope of righteousness. That's what Jesus speaks of here concerning righteousness. Because I go to the Father, fully accepted by him, and you will no longer behold me. The third and last work of the Holy Spirit mentioned here is the Holy Spirit convinces convicts concerning judgment in verse 11 and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. The Holy Spirit convinces men and women that there is a day of judgment that is to come when all men must appear before him and give an account of all that they have done in this life. It will be the day of God's justice and he will judge the world by the standard of his holy law. Men think they can live in their sins and do as they please and they think there will be no consequences to them in the end. But God will have his day of justice. He will have his day in his courtroom on the last day, his courtroom being this entire universe and he will judge all the wrongs and the evils and the sins that have been done in this world. 
Isaiah speaks of it in chapter 2 and verse 12. He says, the Lord of hosts, he will have a day of reckoning. And the pride of man will be humbled. And the loftiness of men will be abased. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. In that day, he says, men will cast away to the moles and the bats their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they have made for themselves to worship, in order to go into the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs. Before the terror of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty, when he arises to make the earth tremble. That's what he will do on the last day. The Lord will arise. The earth will tremble and shake. And every man will see him as he comes down from heaven. Every eye will see him. John says, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Jesus spoke of this day when all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the righteous from the unrighteous. It will be the beginning of eternity and it will be heaven and it will be hell forever and ever on that day. Men think because God does not punish their sins quickly that he does not exist. God has his own timetable. And he has fixed that day of reckoning on his calendar. And when that day comes, the heavens and the earth will be shaken one more time. And then will come the last day of judgment for all men. The proof of this coming day of judgment is found at the end of verse 11, where Jesus says, because the ruler of this world has been judged. How do we know that this day of judgment is coming? Because the ruler of this world has already been judged. The ruler of this world is Satan, the devil. The one who brought brought sin and death into the world by the temptation of our first parents. Jesus says that he is the father of lies and he is a murderer from the beginning and by the power of his lies he rules this world and he holds men in bondage and captivity. But God has promised an end to his power, the destruction of his kingdom by the Savior, Jesus Christ. And he promised him in the very beginning when he said to the serpent, He shall bruise you on the head, you shall bruise him on the heel. And that promise comes to its fulfillment in the cross of Christ where Jesus died, Satan was conquered, his kingdom was destroyed. The cross is the means of God's judgment upon the devil. And that's what Jesus speaks of here. The ruler of this world has been judged. We can just look at a couple passages briefly. In the Gospel of John, if we turn back to John chapter 12, for just a moment, John chapter 12. And verse 31 and 32. And Jesus here, he says, now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world shall be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. And then John tells us what he was saying. 
But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. So Jesus here is come, has come into Jerusalem for the last time, and he is headed to the death of the cross. In verse 31, he speaks of his coming cross and the judgment of the devil and the world. The ruler of this world will be judged. The ruler of this world will be cast out. If we look over to chapter 14, chapter 14 and verse 30. And Jesus speaks here in verse 30. He says, I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. He is looking forward to the cross. He is speaking of the ruler of this world who is coming for him. And there will be the final conflict with him in the death of the cross, and Christ will gain the great victory. So back in John chapter 16 and verse 11, where Jesus says at the end of the verse, the ruler of this world has been judged. He is speaking of the cross. The cross is where the ruler of this world and his kingdom was conquered. We notice the tense in which Jesus speaks here. Has been judged. Past tense. He had not yet gone to the cross, but it was so certain he could speak of it as something already accomplished. In the Greek, it is in the, the, it is in the indicative, which means that this is a fact, this is a truth that Jesus is speaking. It is in the passive voice, which means that this is not something that the devil did. This is something that Christ did to him. Christ conquered him. The Son of God came to destroy the power of the devil in the death of the cross. And it is in the perfect tense which means that his judgment stands fixed forever. It is eternally irrevocable. Satan has been judged at the cross and his judgment can never be changed. And he can never escape God's judgment that has already been accomplished. The ruler of this world has already been judged. And if the ruler of this world has been judged already, then so will the world and all of its evil and its sin against God. If the one who brought sin into the world in the beginning has already been judged. If the leader of the great rebellion has been irrevocably condemned. Then surely there will be a judgment for all who follow him. And do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the judgment of Satan at the cross is the proof of the coming judgment of all men. On the last day, the Holy Spirit convinces men of this truth concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. We notice as we close tonight that all three of these things, sin, righteousness, and judgment, the Holy Spirit convinces men of these things as they relate to the person of Jesus Christ. In verse 9, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. 
In verse 10, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged already by my cross. So everything here is spoken of in relation to Christ. The Son of God, he is the center of all things. And the Holy Spirit, whenever he works, glorifies Jesus. And all these things are interpreted in relation to him. This is the experience of every sinner. Whenever we become a believer to one extent or another. To one degree or another in conversion. These things all come together. The gospel comes to us. The Holy Spirit convinces us of our sin. The Holy Spirit convinces us of the righteousness we need in the person of Christ. And the Holy Spirit convinces us of the judgment that is to come. If you are not a Christian here tonight... I ask you, what should you do? Should you be passive? Should you say to yourself, well, God is sovereign. and He must do the work, so there is nothing that I can do. The God of sovereignty says to you, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. The God of grace says to you, ask and it shall be given. Seek and you shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. The God of salvation says to you that whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. My dear friend, with all that you have done in this past week, I ask you, how much time have you spent seeking the Lord and his salvation? Seeking him by reading the scriptures? Seeking him by going to him in prayer and confessing your sin? If you say to me, I have not spent any time in such things, I would say to you, how can this possibly Because the day of judgment that you have heard of tonight, it is closer tonight than it has ever been before. And your entrance into eternity could be at any time. You must seek the Lord and go to him and read his word and find Jesus in the gospel. And confess your sin and ask him to show you your sin, to show you his righteousness and to make you ready for the great day of judgment that is to come. The world will perish because of its unbelief. But your sin of unbelief how much greater it is because you have heard the gospel so many times. Paul said to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 1, he said, we urge you, 
we urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at the acceptable time, I listened to you. And on the day of salvation, I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. May you seek the Lord until you find him in the word and in prayer. Let's pray together. Father and gracious God in heaven, Lord Jesus, have mercy upon each one of us here tonight. We pray for us who believe in the gospel that you would be gracious to us and grant to us more grace of the Holy Spirit that we might be more pleasing in your sight and walk with you as we should. And we pray for those who do not know you. Lord, may they have no rest and may they come to you and find you. And you have promised that whoever seeks after you with all their heart, you will let them find you. Have mercy upon each one of us and bring all of us, we pray, into your glorious kingdom. And we thank you for your gracious work of salvation. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.